I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash theopenmind. I'm delighted to welcome Jessa Lingle to our broadcast today. She is a professor at the Annenberg School for Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of the new book, The Gentrification of the Internet, How to Reclaim Our Digital Freedom. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jessa. Thanks so much for having me. Jessa, what is it that you mean by the gentrification of the internet? Well, it's about a series of changes that we've seen happen in digital culture over, say, the last 25 or 30 years. And it's something that I started thinking about um, living in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood in Philadelphia. And if you live in a gentrifying neighborhood, you'll hear these different sides about gentrification. You'll hear people who think it's about economic opportunities, and you'll hear other people who think about it in terms of social justice and um, longtime residents getting pushed out by folks who usually have more money. And so as I started going to community meetings and listening to local lawmakers, I realized as someone who teaches digital culture um, that a lot of these same debates are playing out online, a lot of these same battles over who gets to whose communities get to thrive online and who gets to have a sense of power control, whose voices get to be heard. So the gentrification of the Internet is a way of talking about the politics and the ethics and the policies that the Internet that govern who gets to be online and, and who gets to thrive there. Are you using the term gentrification in a way that implies the denial of certain rights or freedoms to a certain section of people? And if so, what does that denial consist of and who are those subsets of people? Sure. So in urban gentrification, we usually think about it as uh, young, affluent, usually white people moving into a neighborhood that has been um, underinvested or undersupported by local um, authorities, local businesses, and coming in and um, sort of setting up a new sense of um, who should be there, what kinds of businesses should be there. And over time, older residents get pushed out and the neighborhood can totally start to look different and feel different. And you see some of the same things online um, in terms of the platforms that have become not just popular, but overwhelmingly um, dominant in the in the online world. So you can think of the early days of the internet, there were all these different platforms that catered to many different groups of people. And now you're seeing platforms that really um, cater to the mainstream. So Facebook, by owning Instagram and also WhatsApp, these other sort of competitors to Facebook, um, controls a huge amount of the market share. And so you can sort of think of it as this major developer that moves in, bulldozes a bunch of longstanding houses, and then sets up a new, uh, new community. So not just how a neighborhood looks, but who gets to live there, who gets to work there, um, and who gets to thrive there. So some of the folks that you see got pushed out um, are people from the global south, um, people who don't speak English as a first language, uh, people who are poor, people who don't have internet connections, um, uh, people who uh, haven't had the same levels of 
access to technology throughout their lives. And when you think about that, it sets up this two-tiered system where the internet just feels like it's for a certain group of people while others get left behind. And that's the same sort of dynamic that shows up in gentrifying neighborhoods. Let's put meat on the bones. What platforms specifically or browsers or apps are we talking about? Sure. The online landscape is really dominated by a few companies. Sometimes they're called the big five, um, Apple, Amazon, Facebook, um, Microsoft, and Google. And living your life without those five companies is not just difficult, it's almost impossible. Um, When we talk about digital culture, the companies that we're really talking about are Facebook, Google, and Amazon, um, who have really come to you know, lay down the law or they've come to sort of establish what the norms are in terms of our online lives, in terms of online platforms, online shopping and online searching. So some of the most basic components of what we do online, um, competitors have been crowded out and then the folks who are getting... What is the correction course that you envision? Astra Taylor wrote a book that had a similar thesis in projecting the hijacking of the internet. I just wonder first how you, how you explore that devolution since Astra's book, a people's platform. And at the point we are now, what do you suggest as the recourse? Mm-hmm. I love Astra Taylor's work, and um, so I'm, I'm happy to um, sort of be following in her footsteps somewhat. Um, I guess one way of thinking about this is I started teaching classes on digital culture in 2010. And so I've had a decade of undergraduates coming into my classroom and wanting to know more about the internet. And I've seen such a change in terms of students' assumptions about who the internet is for and what it should be like. So back in 2010, you know, Facebook was still pretty new and the Arab Spring hadn't happened yet. And there was a real sense of optimism and excitement around technology. You know, my students came into the classroom believing technology was mostly a good thing, might have some downsides, but it was good for the economy, good for them professionally and good for them socially. And my job then was sort of to teach students, well, you know, is the internet actually good for everyone and who gets left behind with the mainstream technology. Now, when I step into a classroom, students feel totally differently. Um, They really can't sort of imagine an internet other than the one we have. And they assume that no matter what they do online, they're going to be surveilled and monitored. Um, They assume that the internet is always going to be capitalist and highly commercialized. Um, They really struggle to imagine that sort of 1990s sense of excitement or optimism about the Internet. And so now my job is less about teaching them how the Internet could be harmful because they already know about that coming into the classroom doors. And it's more about trying to teach them how the Internet got the way that it is and how it could be differently So other books that I've written are really geared more towards academics um, to sort of contribute to scholarship on digital culture. But with this book, I really had my students in mind, and I was just trying to think about what vocabulary can I give them for making sense of the Internet. They know the Internet is not the tool of social justice that people might have thought it was 25 years ago. Uh, but they don't necessarily have a vocabulary for talking about it, and they don't necessarily understand how it got that way. 
And then the other goal is to sort of think about, well, what steps can we take to make it different? And some of those steps are familiar to people who read about, you know, um, digital culture, who read or are reading books um, by folks like Astrid Taylor or Jillian York. And those steps are demanding for, you know, more regulation, um, which is definitely what should happen, definitely something I advocate for in the book. But I also think that we as users can take small steps to sort of make our digital landscape more equitable. We can diversify our networks online and we can take steps to increase our sense of privacy. We can learn more about the platforms themselves and about different apps and their rules and the ways that we can incorporate apps that sort of protect our privacy. Um, and, and so those are the sort of small steps that if we all took, we could actually start to push back on these tech companies because the reality is they need us more than we need them. So we have more power than tech companies want us to think that we do. And that power is something I've talked about from the United States to Denmark to Australia on the, the speaking trail, specifically with respect to shareholders. And I think it was not recognized until the insurrection on January 6th, the extent to which rhetoric had become politically weaponized, um, terroristically weaponized. Um, when you, when you talk about those solutions that we do have more power, there are tangible ways to discuss that power by virtue of shareholders, by virtue of users and boycotts. Some of that occurred in the racial justice movement that was reborn last year, on an ongoing basis now, given the dysfunction of the political process and the legislative process, which would be the one that would assert regulatory control um, or to open up the freedom and to close a kind of narrow gentrification, where does it leave us in terms of those tangible sources of empowerment? Mm-hmm. Well, we can have some hope that now that we have a new administration, the FCC will revert back to the 2015 decisions that can um, give more regulation, provide more regulation around ISPs. And I have a chapter in the book that talks about ISPs and why they matter and why we need more regulation so that we as consumers um, can have more choices in terms of how we get online. Um, so there's there's that route. So there's a federal level through the FCC. Um, there's the idea that we would get um, more regulation um, around tech companies. And we're seeing some interest there around anti uh, antitrust um, laws. And so that that's gathered, been creating a lot of excitement in the legal community and also in the tech activist community. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Although I would say watching the hearings this past summer, you know, about a year ago where um, big tech companies were sort of hauled in front of the Congress to talk about um, whether they were too big, the level of engagement and technological literacy from our lawmakers was so much higher um, than when 
a few years ago, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg was after the Cambridge Analytica scandal, Mark Zuckerberg was held in front of Congress and you just have this miserably, um, basically embarrassing level of understanding from our lawmakers about about basics of the tech industry. So Senator Orrin Hatch famously not understanding Facebook's business model. So I'm encouraged that we might actually get some legislation just based on the increase in awareness and attention and literacy that we're seeing at the federal level. The shareholder point is an interesting one because I think um, there's a misunderstanding um, from a lot of tech activists who are very passionate and demanding change. But the reality is once a company goes public and have shareholders, the company is actually quite limited in terms of how much it can give its ordinary users. So in my last book, I was writing about Craigslist. And one reason that Craigslist is the platform that it is, is because it's privately held. So its CEO, Jim Buckmaster, and its founder, um, Craig Newmark, they have a lot of control. They can choose actually just to make less money if it fits the ideals of, of its users, if it fits who it wants to serve. And you'll never get that from a company like Facebook, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, because they're you know publicly traded. So the shareholder point, I think, is actually really important because um, if we're living in a capitalist society, we're going to demand certain kinds of interventions or actions from corporations, but their hands are tied at a certain level once they go public. Um, so that's that's one way that I think about about that problem. The other thing, the other point that you raise about the January 6th that I think is really important is, so I have been arguing for a long time, we need smaller platforms. We need platforms where um, people have more control over their policies. Having argued that for a decade, I did not understand, and I'm not particularly excited by the fact that the folks who have taken this up the best are folks on the right, you know, so extremists on the right taking up, you know, we're going to build parlor now. Um, that, that's the kind of platform I've been saying we should have. And so it's a little bit tricky to grapple with um, what all the consequences of empowerment are, but the solution isn't to have fewer platforms that are controlled by a small number of people is to have more platforms where more people can find what they um, can see themselves in the platforms online. And if we have enough of everything, then we, um, we won't be sacrificing our own sense of autonomy um, and we'll just have more free speech. When you think of the ways to navigate the free speech issue, um, what is your most prescriptive approach that preserves free speech while also upholding a standard of human values and decency? We need moderation to involve humans. So where you see a problem is um, when these decisions are taken entirely out of the hands of community members and are turned over to either algorithms or a low-paid workforce um, who just has to stare at, you know, terrible, grotesque, violent images and hate speech every day. So the models of where free speech grapples with community safety in a meaningful way um, that I'm most a fan of happen, happen in smaller communities. So I think the solution is, is admittedly difficult to scale. Um, Joan Donovan uh, has written some really great work on this, and I really believe in, in her prescriptions. Um, but, but the problem isn't so much how to have 
um, how to square free speech with safe spaces. It's how to scale those models. But the solution will not be um, to hire a workforce of poorly paid folks um, who aren't given any support in terms of dealing with really difficult, important work that is totally undervalued. And neither will it be through algorithms. It's going to have to involve users feeling like they have a say in the communities um, that they have built online. So that might look like having slightly different rules on different parts of a single platform. You know, Reddit gets a lot of flack for being sort of this, you know, lawless outlaw zone. But actually, Reddit has a really um, useful model of how to navigate community moderation because each of its different subreddits have slightly different rules that are moderated by sort of volunteers from the community. I think the trick would be, can we pay those people? These platforms can clearly afford it. So can we pay people who are using the platform who are already invested in a community to do the work that they're already doing, um, but commit to it in the long term? Um, or create structures where that work is being fulfilled time and time again. So it's not so much about turning it over to individuals as letting a community decide for itself what rules make the most sense um, for their members. If you do it on a rule-by-rule, platform-by-platform basis, though, you see the peril and danger in, in that approach, right? I'm not even interested in the platform by platform approach. I'm, I'm sort of interested in creating spaces within platforms where communities can build their, their own rules. Um, Cause that looks more or less like what it does in everyday life. Um, the, the problem that we have is these platforms are in some cases larger than entire nation states and they're creating rules, you know, these sort of blanket rules that are supposed to work for everyone across the platform. So having a set of blanket basic rules about, well, you can't, you know, commit crimes here or you can't, you know, uh, spam people, that's fine. But then sort of having more nuanced rules within the platform. And it, it can work at scale on a platform like Reddit, which is by no means perfect, but at least provides more granularity than the systems we have now. What do you hope is the takeaway from your book from the perspective of the consumers and, and policymakers as well? The takeaway from the book is that the internet we have now was not inevitable. And that means that we can have a different internet, an internet that feels more equitable and more inclusive. Um, and to get there, we have to do a little bit more work to understand the history of the technologies and that um, and the policies governing them. And we also have to take some sense of accountability for how we treat each other online. But if we do that, if we gain more literacy, if we take more accountability for ourselves and each other, we can live up to some of the best ideas about the internet. We can get to an internet that um, feels more um, equitable. It feels more like a community. Um, it feels more like a you know, main street with mom and pop stores rather than a Walmart. Is that realistic? Is that within reach? Uh, it seems like a kind of utopia or maybe not utopia, but just ideal circumstances that the current economy, what I've talked about before as being a post-factual social media landscape and increasingly a post-factual democracy, mm -hmm. can that be compatible with the vision you just described? It's funny, um, early on in my career as an academic, my, my writing about the internet was a lot more um, cynical or uh, negative. I mean, if you look at the 
the op-eds I've written, they're always about how evil Facebook is, basically. Um, and so I don't know if I'm just contrarian, but now that everybody's on that same page with me, you know, uh, the only space to write from is a space of hope. So I have to believe that we can take small steps that would make our online technologies more fair and more inclusive. Otherwise, I would never be able to do any activist work um, and writing a book would be even more uh, of a hassle than it is. So do I believe that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is going to read my book and then realize, oh, wow, I've been doing this all wrong. And then he's going to, you know, create a platform that's that's more equitable or inclusive, according to my definition or definition of other tech activists. No. Do I think it's important for people to feel like they have more control over their online lives than tech companies want them to believe? Definitely. And I do believe that more equitable arrangements, more empowered users um, can make real change happen. We have seen moments where tech companies have been forced to change their minds. So, for example, in 2014, there was a huge dust up over drag queens, you know, um, and how they use Facebook and they weren't using their real names. And that was a violation of Facebook's rules. And through sustained protest in a coalition between drag queens and also other people whose quote unquote real names didn't align with what Facebook thought a real name was, whether that was indigenous people um, or people who had multiple names because they were avoiding a stalker, um, journalists and their sources. Facebook actually changed their rules because a bunch of users says, this isn't fair. This isn't right. I demand things be different. And then they changed their rules. So we can point to moments where very powerful tech companies have been forced to grapple with their decisions and then make a policy change that actually works for more people on the margins. So if we look at these brief moments where, you know, tech companies had to do an about face and answer to their users, it does give me hope that more equity and more transparency and more inclusion as possible. Thank you so much, Jessa Lingle, author of the new book, The Gentrification of the Internet and scholar and professor at the Annenberg School 